any chance that I'm going to transition from a Bitcoin maximalist to an Ethereum maximalist or a, a Monero maximalist. Number one. Number two, Bitcoin has a good reputation and a positive connotation in the field. Crypto has more of a, a negative connotation because the term has been used as subterfuge for scammers, uh, greedy people, people who could have tried to get their own project implemented into Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is capable of assimilating their project, whether it be as a sidechain or as a layer two technology. And instead, they have jumped to uh, issuing an ICO or issuing another token, and they and they call it crypto. But it's there's no cryptographical or you know there's no real crypt, cryptology behind it. It's just marketing and and. And I'm sure there are a lot of good ideas in the in the pile, right? But that being said, if we just said crypto economics, that's good and all, but it will not have the same reception among the Bitcoin community, which is the essentially the what I perceive as the largest, most cohesive, most traditional, conservative, serious community in the in the cryptocurrency community. Okay, that's fair enough. Yes. So you, it's almost like instead of Bitcoin Maxima for the podcast, your name should be Bitcoin Maximalist. Yes. Now the term Bitcoin Maximalist was originally intended to be almost like a like a slur, and it was embraced by the people who who say, you know what, I am a Bitcoin Maximalist, and a, and a Bitcoin Maximalist is just somebody who says, I think that Bitcoin is sufficient and necessary, right? Well, that's how the Big Bang thing started. Like it was, uh, it was meant as an insult. Mm -hmm. There's a Big Bang. Oh, you think you believe in a Big Bang, creator of the universe? Wow! So I didn't know that. Do you know who who used that term as a as an insult in the beginning? Um, no, I I don't. I can read, I could Google it. I guess that'll be next episode. We'll <laughs> that'll be the next episode. Yes. We'll, we'll catch up. Yes. But um, no, I think we should introduce ourselves. Yes. Yes. We're both using pseudonyms. Yes. As everyone should. As everyone should at all times, especially yeah. in the public sphere. Yes. My name is Sauce Money. Mm -hmm. My name is Bitcoin Lobby. At, uh, at Bitcoin underscore Lobby on Twitter. I, I'm one of your followers. Um, you. I've been following you for almost a week now. And it's been a, a lot of fun. <laughs> Very nice. Having said that, my name is Sauce Money, but I don't know much about Bitcoin. And part of this journey on our podcast is me learning about Bitcoin through you, who have, you're the person who I know who knows the most about Bitcoin. Um, to start off with, we, we decided to tackle the question... What is Bitcoin? That's right. And I have the cynical side of me and I have the optimist side of me. The, the optimist, romantic, sci-fi, embracing side of me believes that it's a transition in philosophy of what humanity embraces. Like currency was an embrace of the sovereign state. This king or this government gives value to these pieces of paper or coins 
and we and oh, if the king says these coins are worth two pigs, then I'll trade with these two coins. But the romantic in me says, oh, maybe we're doing that transition from sovereignty to technology. And it's technology that we don't even understand, or technology or mathematics, but both are, there's still a, a fundamental faith in one or the other. Like, neither you nor I know the mathematics behind Bitcoin, and neither you nor I know all the technology, all the details uh, behind Bitcoin either. But there is an element of faith that, oh, we believe that the experts who say this believe that. And if enough people believe that, and if enough people believe in Bitcoin per se, I think that's what's, what might be what the markets aren't understanding right now that could make it, no, 100 years from now or 50 years from now, more people believe in Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin just to be... That's right. That's right. Um, I'm, I'm, I lost my train of thought, but basically... Yeah. If, if technology becomes the dominant ideology behind currency, mm-hmm. I think that that would be very interesting, and I don't see it as an impossible scenario either. Like having it, it having a greater importance in our collective imaginations than a sovereign state. Yes. There's a lot of things that are foreign to us, but to our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, it will be natural, and not only natural, they will view our way of living as foreign as well in that regard. I was trying to explain to somebody yesterday my feelings towards Bitcoin, and I, I likened it to a political party or, or a religion. And they were a little, they were probing into that because they were curious, why do you consider it to be like a religion? And I explained to them, well, I think that, you know, humans have a natural inclination towards something spiritual. They want the feeling of something spiritual. They're looking for a greater meaning behind things. And I think that for me, it was, it was, I was uh, ripe for this development in my life because I do have a background in economics and I do have an understanding of the current financial system and the current monetary policy. And I have my reservations about it. And also, I, I have my anti-authoritarian undertones as, uh, as an American. And Bitcoin offers something. It, it satisfies so many different of my interests. And it really does have the moral high ground in terms of it's not just the money. It's touted as something that is going to provide economic freedom and secure property rights to billions of people. Property rights that we enjoy being in the first world, property rights that we don't have to worry that somebody's going to steal our property, steal our real estate. We know that if we go down to the bank, we can get a loan. We have access to capital markets. We can buy stocks. We can buy bonds. Even if we don't understand how they work, they're not going to be stolen from us necessarily. We have a judicial system that will enforce our rights. And that's something that causes a lot of problems in other parts of the world that they don't have secure property rights. And some scholars have said that that is actually a a big underlying cause of poverty is that people don't have secure property rights. And if property rights were more secure, it would would attract more investment from first first world countries into more under-resourced nations. 
going back to the original question about what is Bitcoin, I think you're right that we are experiencing an intergenerational shift away from governmental authorities, not only in, in terms of Bitcoin and money, but also in terms of the disenfranchisement about regulatory capture about Citizens United and how it gives the, it provides the appearance of corruption, that it provides the appearance of a quid pro quo system. And although the Supreme Court has said that quid pro quo bribery is still against the law, you know, donating to somebody on the implicit assumption that they are going to return the favor, that is the, the norm almost in Washington, D.C. And I think that there is a a rejection of the system. I think we've seen that, especially with the recent political process and the recent financial crisis. And a lot of people are, are there is almost a reversion back towards a decentralized ethos happening, not only on the geopolitical level, but also in, in the financial markets. And the markets are obviously choosing cryptocurrencies, whether it is Bitcoin or, or these other coins, they are, capital is very cheap and it is looking for super, super normal returns, something that treasuries can't provide, something that the stock market can't provide. But it's, it's more than that. It's deeper than that. It provides people with a, with a greater meaning, with, with a greater purpose, something where they wake up in the morning and they're happy that Bitcoin exists. They're happy that, that they get to live through this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see, to live through it in real time as it unfolds before our very eyes. And I, I thought about how in the short run, we have no idea where Bitcoin is going. And in the long run, we can surmise that something that's the equivalent, you know, whether it be digital money or, or Bitcoin itself, some the, the money that we rely on is going to be replaced. Even if it's replaced by digital fiat, it's going to be replaced somehow, some way. And that's going to unlock a whole other level of economic prosperity as we saw with the Internet. But by digital fiat, you mean like the government just yes. making their own cryptocurrency? Yes, that's right. Fiat is, of course, uh, it means by decree. And it means that the... The fiat money, the paper money, has the legitimacy because the government says this is money. But in my opinion, that is not what gives the money value. What gives the money value, and you could see that, for instance, in Venezuela, where people will reject government money even though government says this has value in it and is losing value tremendously in the marketplace. And the reason why is because the free markets give money value. If I give you a dollar... You don't want the dollar itself. You want to exchange that dollar for other people's goods and services. And that's why you are willing to give to accept a dollar in exchange for your goods and services. If you knew that no one else was going to accept that dollar, then it's just a piece of paper that looks green. Right. I, I see it from the other perspective. Like, even if you hate everything America stands for, you know, like, and the person who hates America the most, Osama bin Laden, he still likes U.S. dollars. You know, like, he'll, he wants them, like, to buy influence or to plot uh, terrorist attacks or whatever. Like, he still understands the value that maybe he doesn't believe in America, but he definitely believes that this, this is the way the world works. If Bitcoin becomes the way the world works, 
when and if we believe more in the mathematics behind Bitcoin and the technology of encryption and all that, then I think to me it doesn't sound implausible that there will be a shift towards that at some point, especially as governments yes. become less and less trustworthy, which is, which is something that like with the debt of certain governments, like it could get to that point where do I really want to invest in this currency that could go bankrupt at any second? That's right. And and the equivalent of a currency going bankrupt is is inflation. And and the reason I believe that we are it inflation is inevitable when it comes to the US dollar. And the reason why is because national debt is about one hundred percent of GDP, right? Think about just under twenty trillion dollars right now. The incentives for politicians are always to cut taxes and increase spending. If they don't cut taxes and increase spending, they get voted out of office. So there is an incentive to increase the debt. Kicking, uh, increasing the debt is essentially delaying your gratification. You're kicking the can down the road. The only other way to get rid of the debt is by either economic growth, which is a tax increase. So that falls into one of the first categories because you're taxing the same tax rates on a greater amount of money. Therefore, your tax revenues go up or it's to inflate the money away, which is natural. I think that. I, but, but inflation, I think, is a very small portion of how they pay off their, their debt. Or am I wrong? You're, you're correct. Inflation also will occur if we start monetizing the debt, which some people say that what the quantitative easing is monetizing the debt, or it is per se inflating the money supply. We haven't seen the markets react that way because the velocity of money has dropped precipitously. Velocity of money being how often are people spending money? How fast does money move through the economy? That also plays a role in terms of inflation, we've seen the velocity of money drop. We've seen the money supply increase, but we haven't seen inflation like I was expecting a few years ago when the Federal Reserve was creating res reserves in uh, you know trillions of dollars. We've, they've added almost $4 trillion to the Federal Reserve's balance sheet since the financial crisis in 2007. And we economists, some economists expected inflation. I still expect inflation in the long run. It is the only way that we are going to get out of this debt trap that, that the United States has gotten itself into. And not only the United States, but this is a phenomenon that's occurring around the world. What do you think? Uh, well, I think Japan is an exception. Like, they've, they've been, they had the economic crisis of the 90s, and they suffered de deflation, which is when prices go down. And... For all the problems inflation has, deflation is much a much much greater problem. And why? Because people, because <coughs> people don't invest this year because they think they can buy the same assets at five percent or ten percent less next year. So they might as well just wait and see what happens. Um, Implicit in that answer, though, is the assumption that consumption is good. And we do live in a consumption-based Well, this is investment. Like, oh, investment. Even investment, like, I'm not going to build a, a building today 
because it'll be 10%, 20% cheaper to build it a year or two from now. Cool, that's interesting. That, that's what happened in Japan, and they had like a 10-year like depression, basically. And right now, they're, they're, I, I haven't checked lately, but they're starting to have small signs of inflation, but just to become a regular nation. And that's where they want to be, you know. But uh, deflation can be very much more harmful to an economy than inflation. Obviously, this is not Zimbabwe, uh, where there's hyperinflation. Or Venezuela, where they like money basically loses any value whatsoever. You know. So, I I agree with you that there's ways to go, but I still think the U.S. dollar is a pretty pretty good standard in terms of going back to Bitcoin and less to the US dollar like at least the US dollar and the euro don't have the volatility that Bitcoin has like the problem that I see and this is the before I talked about the optimistic side of me like the critical side of me I don't see Bitcoin as a currency as much as I see it as an asset. You want to buy some ones and zeros, go ahead, buy some ones and zeros. You know, like, you're free to do that, you're yeah, a bit more obvious. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you that the markets are gobbling up these ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think that what you alluded to earlier is absolutely correct. People have faith in the dollar. Even somebody who wants to destroy America will still trade dollars. And, and people, and they, they act as if there's something special about it. And there is. The thing that's special about it is that there is faith backing it. It is not a volatile currency. And as you pointed out, there is it is the, the reserve currency of the world, right? That. And the reason why we have such a high quality of life and the reason why we're able to import so much, uh, so many goods is because the dollar is being subsidized by people in second and third world countries who are hoarding dollars because to them it represents stability and security. You, but I, do you think that's the, level, that's the reason the U.S. dollar has value? Or, that, or one of several reasons and a small one within that? Exactly, the, the latter. The, the reason the United States is such an economic powerhouse is because geography, culture, and probably the fact that we, we uh, you know, I mean, we produce lots of goods and services. I think that, that that is subsumed into the culture aspect, but also because we have the world reserve currency. This is interesting because I've never even discussed it, but culture like you can unpack a lot with that but like let's say the legal system the rule of law uh, a framework where private companies can thrive despite the government's best efforts you know and <laughs> you're having a good time um, but like they, they obviously produce goods and services so like they might be ta- overtaken by China eventually but per capita, right now, they're one of the strongest nations. They're not the strongest. They're not Norway. But they, they do have a, a big population. Geography, sure, it's an advantage. But um, I, I think their economy really, really set the standard, you know, 
of like they they outcompete everybody else right now, at least at least in terms of volume. Can I ask you a question? Mm-hmm. You were a journalist. Mm-hmm. What were you a journalist during the rise of the internet, or afterwards? I, I'm a journalist, but in the U.S., I wouldn't be called a journalist. Okay. I, I, I would represent companies and put them in touch with journalists and prepare a communication strategy. But uh, the example that I want to give is that if we were having this this discussion decades ago mm-hmm. about the rise of the internet, mm-hmm. and we were saying the newspaper companies. They, they run. They offer a good service. They're dependable. They have journalists of pedigree. They have certain wide circulations. They're they're producing a lot of really good work, and that and I I would say that is still largely true to this day. If you wanted to get news, the newspaper, depending on the newspaper, is going to give you a higher quality of journalism than if you were to, for instance, watch watch television. Now. The thing about the internet, though, is that it allowed information to spread much easier. And the reason why is because the transaction costs were lower, the, co- the barrier to entry was much lower, and, and all of a sudden, information just started proliferating throughout the entire world in a way that it had never done so before. You would never be able to distribute the New York Times to somebody um, in you know, in the recesses of uh, of you know a continent in a in an area where they don't have the same infrastructure as before, right? Right. The same. And right, you can be at the Barcelona by the beach and get. Them. You might be able to find one kiosk that sold the New York Times, but you couldn't get on your phone and after going to the club and read a New York Times column. That's a good point. Yes, yeah. that's a good point. And the analogy that I want to draw here is that. If Bitcoin serves the same purpose eventually as the Bitcoin, as the dollar does, as the U.S. dollar, that people hoard their wealth in it, they are willing to accept it even if they're not within the jurisdiction of the United States, and they're willing to use it in commerce because they they highly regard it. Right now, the same thing is happening to information or to to money as happened to information now. People in the recesses of any part of the world, as long as they have internet access, are able to have Bitcoin. Imagine how hard it would be to to be in a third world country and to get dollars. Imagine now how how much easier it would be to get Bitcoin. In a sense, it's still going to. There's still barriers to entry, but the barriers have dropped. And do you think that do you think that it poses a threat to the U.S. dollar? I, I'm still not there to make any more information on Bitcoin to see if it's a threat. I think ultimately Kenneth Rogoff, which is this economist that I like, uh, he's been writing a lot about Bitcoin. He says ultimately what, what is most likely to happen, the Fed as much as they or any government as much as they might like Bitcoin, they might ultimately giving up monetary policy is a big task to ask for any government. Like, it's going to be hard to just say, yeah, yeah, let's, let's give it away. It's more likely that they let it thrive, kind of like what's happening with Facebook now. Like, hey, Facebook, you were talking about newspapers and the New York Times. Right now, new, Facebook is the biggest editor in the world that has ever existed in all of history. 
And and right now, just a week ago, they, they had those hearings and they were talking about regulating Facebook. Maybe nothing will happen, but maybe in a year or a couple of years, we'll say what type of news is allowed on Facebook, what type of news is not allowed. And there's going to be some sort of over oversight. Maybe with Bitcoin, once it's thrived and it's gross enough, they'll say we're going to regulate it because we don't want... Uh, child pornography, we don't want uh, arms dealings, all this type of stuff that the government feels it has a right to to be aware of. Yeah. Th that's going to be their end into controlling one of these coins. Yeah. But maybe, maybe it'll be decentralized and we'll live in, in that world. And I hope, I think you and I are kind of hoping that that is the, the answer. Like, yes, that's right. Uh, okay, so I have to give a quick answer and then a, a longer explanation. The quick answer is that if money is used for an evil purpose, that is not the fault of the money. Rather, that is the fault of the person using it as a tool for an evil purpose. For example, you have a fork. Or no, that's probably a bad example. You have a, a knife, a butter knife, right? That butter knife can be used to kill people, mm -hmm. right? But we still have knives in our houses. Why? Well, because it's not the knife that's bad. It's using the knife for evil, which is bad, and we punish that, but we don't tell people who are going to use knives for a good purpose that they can't own knives. And even if we did, you wouldn't be able to eradicate knives from the economy, right? That's number one. Number two is to address what you were talking about. The governments don't want Bitcoin to supersede their ability to print money. Of course, if I had a, if I had a money printer in my basement... I wouldn't want anyone to take that away from me either, right? That sounds good. It's, we're just pouring up some wine right now just for the, let the record reflect. I don't think there will be an instance where we ask for Bitcoin to supersede a national currency. I think that the markets are going to decide, and if everyone in the world decides that Bitcoins are more valuable than dollars, how is the Fed going to stop that? How is a, a legislator going to stop that? They can pass a law that says you can't use Bitcoin in commerce, but they can't. They can't tell the markets don't value this. You know, they can maybe participate in the free markets if they want to. They can print dollars and short Bitcoin, whatever they want to do. Right. Yeah. Like, because we could be trading copies of Alice in Wonderland. Yes. And I, oh no, I want to pay five hundred dollars for this copy. Like, and that's basically what you're saying. Like, uh, whatever value we want to give to this imaginary object, exactly. we're allowed to give it to it. It okay. doesn't matter that a. It doesn't matter that my local city councilman tells me that Alice in Wonderland is worth nothing. Right. The the city councilman can tell me we've passed an ordinance and your Alice in Wonderland is worthless, but they don't make the decision. They don't make the decision just the same way that, you know, they don't decide what money is worth. All they say is, this is our official money. Everyone believes it. The markets act accordingly. Let me ask you a question. I, I have a, a, a very deep, deep question for you. Is the government a free market actor? Ask me a more specific question, like in what sense? Because yes. I think in, in some levels it is, in some levels it isn't. There's a book that's called Anarchy, State, and Utopia. It's by Robert Nozak, something like that. And he says, he's a libertarian, and he, 
he proceeds on these assumptions. He does a very thorough job. It's a very long book. I haven't read the whole thing. But he proceeds and he starts from first principles and he says, okay, imagine almost like a Hobbesian state of nature, right? You, you're living without a government. And what are the free markets? What does that look like? If, if we're just going to say free markets are the law of the land, there is no law, right? Mm-hmm. He shows that free that the free markets will provide governments, or at least they will provide firms that provide governmental services, traditionally what we think of as governmental services. And I think that we see this in countries where the government collapses. There usually is a power vacuum that is filled by a militant group that provides government-like services, and they tax. And I'm just wondering, okay, so maybe, maybe what he would say, the author of the book would say, is that what differentiates his free market from the world we're living in right now is that you can have multiple governments that interact within the same jurisdiction. But I think that we already have that. We have state governments interacting with international bodies, interacting with federal governments, interacting with local jurisdictions, interacting with even governments of private contract, like the homeowners association, right? So at this point, I'm wondering, okay, so let's assume that, let's assume that the free market will provide governments. Well, how can we say that the governments that we currently have did not arise in a free market? For instance, how can we say that the United States constitution is not a contract among other governments that the free markets created, namely the states? Jesus. Jesus. Um, You're reminding me, what's the name of this book again? Anarchy, State, and Utopia. It it reminds me of uh, power, uh, government and power. I I forget the title. It's by this author named Manker Olson, which I never finished through the book to completion, but it's one of those ideas that stayed with me forever. And it was um, how governments are formed. And imagine you're just some village, uh, and all of a sudden, the a Roman bandit comes over and takes away all your produce, you know, like your your food, and and you're left with just barely enough to survive. And in two years' time, they come back and take away all your stuff again. Eventually, you pay a, a samurai or some sort of warrior to defend yourself. And whenever the Roman bandits come, that samurai is there to chase them away. So it's basically making a contract with with whatever warrior is going to defend your town and and give him 50% instead of giving this Roman bandits 90% every time they come. And that's a bit the... Because governments at the end of the day, for me, are like how we use violence in, in a legal way. Um, that's Within that, we can decide how we do groups. Going to free markets from that concept is, like, we still work in, in terms of violence. Like, we're all protected by the U.S. Army and the Ministry of Defense. Uh, in, in Canada, they're not protected by the U.S. Army and the Ministry of Defense. You well, know, they're in NATO. 
the NATO yeah. for whatever that means. But Article like, five. Yeah, but uh, it, it's it's not the same. Like I think um, if Canada is invaded, they won't treat it the same as if Hawaii is invaded or Alaska or California. And ha- having said that, like th- there's that concept that. I, I think we won't lose government's ability to execute violence, even if we have Bitcoin. Like the economy will, I think the economy can run regardless of that. Like the armies and militaries need to run despite of that. And, and then there's that type of violence, and then there's internal violence, like police and, and a legal system to execute the laws that makes sure that we can work within a certain framework so that free market, better or worse, can can work. Um, so your concept was, and here's where I got a bit lost, like you're saying, like there's governments interacting with building communities, interacting with other states and, and stuff like this. Like, where, where were you going with that concept? Like you're saying... If they all choose to, I think where you're going with this is if they choose to go with Bitcoin as some forms of transaction, and they decide this is the best way for us to make a make a deal, then all then why not? If they if they stay as U.S. dollars, and in that particular um, deal they decide to go with U.S. dollars or euros or yen or whatever, then yeah, for whatever reason, use whatever. If you want to seal a deal, seal it between two parties or several parties, choose whatever currency you yes. decide. Yes. Is that what you were trying to say? Nope, that isn't. Okay. But, but it brings up a very good topic that I, that I want to discuss. So you mentioned that you don't think that Bitcoin is going to eradicate war from the face of the earth. And there are some people that, that say yes. There are some people that say it will. They, but for that to be true the soldiers have to be willing to accept no other currency than Bitcoin. And I think that that romantic view of the world is possible. It definitely could happen. And there's a term for it. It's called hyper-Bitcoinization. And the idea is the coin by Daniel Krawitz. The idea is that all of a sudden people are going to realize that Bitcoin is valuable and everything else is not. And Overnight, almost, I mean, of course, uh, not literally, but figuratively, everyone will no longer recognize all these other currencies as legitimate, and they will plummet in price versus Bitcoin. That theory has been challenged in the past year, 2017, with the rise of altcoins and the rise of of other cryptocurrencies, and I think that we really see that free markets are truly the law of, of cryptocurrencies, right? If, if somebody's going to value a cryptocurrency, then, then they're going to accept, they're going to accept army coin, whatever. And a mili- uh, somebody in the military is going to be willing to accept army coin because they can buy things with it because the market ha- says that this coin has value and they will still go to war. But if we have a situation where governments are no longer able to run the printing press and instead they have to tax people and the people have money that is hard to seize because it's not held with centralized intermediaries. So they have to be very nice to the citizenry because otherwise the citizenry is not going to recognize the government and is going to withhold taxes. 
then we could have a situation where the power of all centralized intermediaries, namely governments, will quickly dwindle in the sense that once you cut off the, the money supply, right, the flow of money, you start starving the entity because it's going to be very hard to coerce people to work for the government if you don't pay them. Right? I'm sure that there are some places where that's not the case, where people are forced to work for the government even though they don't want to. But just the laws of economics, you, you have to compensate them somehow for their goods and services. Will we see hyper-Bitcoinization? Maybe. I hope so. I don't know. Did that answer your question? I think we might be drinking too much wine. Too... I, I don't... I don't really know. I don't really know where we're going with this. Like, as I said, like Bitcoin is still new to me. I'm, I mean, I'm just creating scenarios in my head as you're bringing them up, and I'm trying. And as you as you speak, it's almost like it's opening different dimensions because I'm starting to think of, okay, in which scenario could a a government with an army not need to have Bitcoin under its rule? Like, let's say. Let's say Russia. Like everybody's accepted Bitcoin for years and years and years, and Russia decides to go rogue and say, "No, no, we're taking over." And at least in this geographical region, we dominate. All the army knows this, and we can give bread to our soldiers, and we can give um, services and goods and services to our soldiers under this other currency, and it's worth. And our ruble is worth fifty Bitcoin. So the Bitcoin is basically obsolete. To a certain degree, you know, like if you rubles are what is exciting, what is valuable in that geographical region. So I say, well, that's possible if you get to that level of extreme violence where, where like using Bitcoin or you know, where they can enforce that through violence. And as I said at the beginning, like it was the belief, like the money we have right now is the belief in sovereignty, like that there's a king or a government. Is it though? That's what we're told. That's, that's where, like, somebody had to make, like, it's going back to the philosophical question of what is money, yes. which is a very collective imagination type of invention. It, it's not just the belief that I believe it has value, is that you believe it has value and that everybody else believes it has value. If you think that the best that US dollars don't have any value, you're allowed to set them on fire. But I have to pay taxes. You're, but not if you don't make any income. That's true. <laughs> That's true. How am I gonna survive if I don't make any income? You know that if you let's say that I start a business and I say, I don't accept dollars. You trade me your goods and services and we will barter. Did you know that the IRS is going to charge me taxes on the fair market value of the goods and services that I receive and those taxes will be due in U.S. dollars? I wouldn't be surprised. That's exactly not, the IRS is not dumb. That's right. And That's right. Otherwise, we live in a barter economy. Now, that would be kind of nice, I think. If I think it would yes. be awful. I oh, think, really? I think money is one of the smartest inventions of humankind and one of the most innovative inventions. Like, all of a sudden, you don't need a sheep to 
Yes, I, I think you're right that we are, we, our material living standards are way better because of money. But I also think that money, money is a free market phenomenon. I think that we would have free, free money even if we did not have governmental money. I, I just think it's such a useful tool. Yes. You know, and it's, and, and look, the fact that we were, this when we started this because we were saying like the euro and the U.S. dollar compared to each other, as much as the U.S. dollar has dropped recently, it's, it's relatively stable. It's not, it's not like the Bitcoin where it can go up 500 or thousand dollars in, in a couple of months. Um, like you might lose 10 cents, 20 cents on the euro uh, in a couple of months. But there is a difference, though. The difference is that the United States dollar is steadily declining and Bitcoin is steadily rising. Not steadily, but it's rising in the long run. Okay. Yes. Yeah, fair, fair yes. enough. Yeah. But uh, and that's the skeptical in me. But um, yeah, this is where... I think this is a good place to end. That's a good question. But first, we need to answer the original question, what is Bitcoin? Can I explain what it is? Yes. Bitcoin is a set of rules adopted by people by running software that enforces the rules. And the rules of the game are this. Bitcoin is a ledger that is possessed by thousands of computers throughout the world. They're called full nodes. A full node has a full copy of the blockchain and it fully enforces all of the rules of Bitcoin. There is not one full node that is more valuable than another full node except the full nodes that have miners behind them. Those full nodes have a little bit more power, but other than that, we don't it's not like we log on to our bank and we ask our bank how much money do I have? Instead, we go on our software and our software by itself derives from the ledger how much money we have, how much money somebody else has, and the legitimacy of their money when they try to send it to us. Essentially what Bitcoin is, you're right, it is a number in the, in the ledger, in the distributed ledger, and the distributed ledger comes in the form of blockchain. What is a blockchain? A blockchain is a data structure where information is added in discrete segments, which are called blocks, and they are usually backed by some sort of consensus mechanism so that your software will automatically know the legitimacy of every block that it, that it hears about on the network. How does the block gain legitimacy? Well, the block has to be valid, meaning every transfer, every transaction within the block has to refer to real Bitcoin. It has to have the proper authority to spend the Bitcoin using a digital signature, and it has to solve an arbitrarily difficult math problem. So we know that all of the people who are mining are investing lots of money in electricity and lots of money in capital to produce these answers. And the answer itself is self-evident whether or not it is correct or not. It's checked automatically by the software. And the software is able to work in this in the, within this protocol. Now, another technology behind Bitcoin is, as I mentioned, digital signatures. What is a digital signature? Well, a digital signature is proof that somebody is in control of certain information without revealing that information. So if I tell you, Sauce, I have a secret to tell you, 
you say, what's the secret? And I say, well, I can't tell you the secret, but I could, I could prove to you that I know the secret. And you say, okay, prove to me that you know the secret. And then I say, okay, you know, on this date, this is going to happen. And I know the secret that caused that event, but I don't reveal what, what that actual cause is. And then I can continue to make more and more predictions because I'm in possession of the information. Same thing here. The person doesn't own the Bitcoin per se. You own the private key, which is a string of 256 zeros and ones, or it can come in the form of, of 12 to 24 words. And what happens is, Every time you sign a transaction, it creates a unique signature, so you know that the person in control of the secret revealed that this transaction is acceptable to them without revealing the secret itself. And digital signatures are unforgeable, and every Bitcoin transaction essentially says three things. It says, I have this Bitcoin. Look at this transaction that previously occurred on the blockchain. I have the authority to spend this Bitcoin. Look at my digital signature. And then my, Bitcoin, my transaction follows the consensus rules. My transaction follows the protocol rules, and it will be recognized by your node independently of mine. Independently, you will know the validity of my transaction. You don't have to go to a bank and ask them, was that transaction valid? Did that person actually have the money that they wrote on the check? You have to rely on your bank. No longer do you have to rely on your bank for confirming the validity or for possessing your money because you possess the key to your money. So what does it offer? It offers a decentralized system that evolves. It evolves like a biological organism. When you attack a biological organism, nature naturally strengthens the defenses of the organism to solve problems. Like for instance, we are the product of thousands and millions of years of decentralized almost consensus in a sense, decentralized consensus in the form of survival of the fittest and evolution, which has produced, which produces a resilient life form that can grow over time. And it, it's really beautiful. Bitcoin is so beautiful because once we have, one, it's not just money, it's a decentralized network for transferring value. So now we can have new ways of transferring value that never existed before. Like for instance, I can send you a millionth of a penny, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe not right now in the future. I'll be able to send you a millionth of a penny. Can't do that with our current, with our current systems, mm -hmm. right? If I wanted to send you $100 million, how much would that cost me? And in existing financial systems, and remember existing financial systems are very mature. They've been around for a long time. There's a lot of money cost you in Bitcoin. In Bitcoin, it would probably cost me anywhere from, depending on, depending on how many transactions my current transaction has to refer to in the past, which occurred, it would cost me anywhere from pennies to dollars. But it's not going to be 3%. Oh, no, it's not going to be 3%. It's not, yeah. Pass me $100 million will not cost you 1%. It could cost me the same amount as sending you the millionth of a penny does because it doesn't depend on how much value you're transferring. It depends on how much data space are you occupying within the block. So how large is your transaction in terms of data? And what is the prevailing market rate for that block data space? And that's a very ambiguous answer for like, is, is, it, is that answer closer to 
0.01% or or 5%? Good question. It's not a percentage of the amount transferred. That's the beauty okay. of it. It is it's a, a fixed amount? It is a fixed amount. Um, now, okay, there is a marketplace, so there's supply and demand. The miners are offering a fungible service. They're including transactions into the block. There is a finite supply, right? Every 10 minutes, there is over one megabyte of new transactions that are being added to the blockchain. The demand is variable. Sometimes an ordinary Bitcoin transaction can cost $10. Sometimes it costs a penny. It depends on the, the prevailing market rates. Right now, I can send you $10 million overnight for $0.05. Cents. And it, can you yeah. do an example of showing me in, like, in, yes, front, sure. in front of our audience? Sure, <laughs> sure. Just give me, uh, give me your private keys and I'll send some over right away. Okay, everyone, we're going to wrap up this episode. Before we go, let me just say, send us your comments. Find me on Twitter at Bitcoin underscore lobby. That is B-I-T-C-O-I-N line at the bottom, L-O-B-B-Y. And you can send us some messages and we'll, we'll take your, uh, tell us what you like. Do you want more economics? Do you want more technicalities of Bitcoin? Or do you want more uh, fun jokes from Sauce? <laughs> Thanks for putting me on the spot with fun jokes. Um, thank you for listening to us. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, Bitcoin lobbyist, pleasure to meet you. And I hope to do this on a weekly basis.